be really careful and alert when you're listening to a religious leader in the church. You need to... Good, you're alert. Um, when someone in the church who's some kind of spiritual authority uh, is talking, you need to have some part of your brain with your antenna up and your discerning radar on. Because while it's true that there are hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of good godly leaders in churches all over the world, the fact is that it only takes one experience of putting yourself sort of under the spiritual leadership of a bad apple to, to really damage your faith. It can really set you back and harm you in a lot of ways. And so here we have Jesus' words to the church in Thyatira. And among the things we're going to study this morning is that they had unfortunately allowed uh, a damaging, corrupt, sort of bad apple spiritual leader in their church. And it was having negative consequences to the people there. So here we have Jesus' teaching uh, this message, this oracle to the church in Thyatira. If you look at verse 18, he says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So this letter starts the way all the other messages do in the book of Revelation to the churches. It starts with a command to write to the church. And then Jesus introduces Himself using some imagery or some language. And notice here, it's really the language of Jesus as judge. He calls Himself, first of all, the Son of God, which we will see later comes out of a passage that's quoted at the end in verse 27 from Psalm chapter 2, where, where it's the Son of God language. And in that context, it has to do with Him judging the nations. Uh, but notice He also says in verse 18, His eyes are like blazing fire. Jesus can see through to the real us underneath the masks and underneath the outward images. We can be fooled by false teachers. People can come and sell them to uh, themselves to us as spiritual and, and wise. But Jesus sees through all that baloney. And He knows who we really are. So, he's, so again, here's the Son of God. He's the judge. His feet are like burnished bronze. This, this, I think, speaks to His holiness and His greatness. So He's the holy judge addressing this church that has fallen prey to a false religious leader, but Jesus hasn't. He sees it and He's going to identify it and speak to it. And so He speaks to the church. And he has three general messages to the church. And we've seen this in other letters to the churches as well. He has a commendation. He has some good things to say to the church. And then he has a condemnation. He has a critique and a rebuke for the church. And then finally, he has a call upon the church to press on past their, their sin and to keep following him and be faithful. So a commendation, a condemnation, and then a call to persevere and overcome. So I just want to look at each of these three things Jesus has to say to this church and then listen because he has to say it to us as well. So the first thing he has is a commendation. He wants to praise them, give them an attaboy for something they're doing well. Look at verse 19. He says, I know your deeds. And then he gives specifically what they are. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're doing more and now doing more than you did at first. So Jesus says, I want to praise you as a church because you're really growing. I see love. I see faith. I see perseverance. I see service. And not only do I see it, I see more of it than I used to see. So you guys are growing in your faith. This is a growing church. 
Now, it's interesting because when we think of church growth, when we use that language today, we are usually talking about numeric growth in a church, more people in a church, bigger ministries, more kids attending a program, larger facilities. And that is a type of church growth. But it's interesting that when you look at the New Testament, more often when growth imagery, growth metaphors or language is used in the New Testament, it's more often talking about this kind of growth, which is spiritual growth in Christ-like character. That the real important growth, that the foundational growth, is that we as Christians are reflecting Jesus' character more and more. And this is the character of Christ, is it not? Love, faith, service, perseverance, these characteristics here in verse 19. And Jesus is saying, as I look at youth, church in Thyatira, I see more and more of myself every day. You're reflecting my glory back more clearly all the time. Now, does a church that's reflecting Christ's glory, could it also be a numerically growing church? Yeah, the two are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, if a church becomes more godly and more loving, it's probably a kind of place that people would want to be in. And if we're becoming more like Christ, we're going to have concern for people in the world. We're going to see the poor, people in need, people going through tough times that we know. And if we're more like Christ, we're going to reach out to them. And if we love Christ, we're going to want to tell people about Jesus. So I'm not surprised if a spiritually growing church is also a numerically growing church that needs expanded facilities and programs and ministries. But, but I just want to point out that the real key is the spiritual growth in Christ-like character. And regardless of what's happening with the church kind of externally, Jesus says, you guys are growing in these characteristics. Let's look at each of these four just really quickly. He says, you're growing in love. They're learning how to love each other more. Are we, are we growing in love as a congregation? You know, it, it's tough being a church. You've got to put up with all kinds of people. You know? If you all just saw it my way, we'd get along much better as a congregation. But it's not how it works. Different personalities. You know, what, what a funny hodgepodge group of people a local church is. But we're all drawn together around Christ. And so to be a church family, not just be people filling pews and leaving, but to really actually be a family as a church, uh, you know, it really takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of patience and a lot of forgiveness. And so we need to learn how to love. We need how to love, love new people who come into the church and welcome them and to love people in our lives. So whereas the church in Ephesus had kind of declined on the love scale, the church in Thyatira was growing. Are we growing in love? He says that they're growing in faith. They're trusting God more than they used to. You know, you look back on your life, do you say, boy, today I've really learned how to trust God. Things that I'm going through today where I can trust Him five years ago would have sent me into a tizzy. But I'm, I'm quicker to trust Him now. I'm quicker to pray. That's growing in faith through the trials of life. Or I think growing in faith also implies that we're taking risks of faith. That we're you know, attempting things for God that maybe we wouldn't have done before. Uh, you know, it's like, boy, if I would, you would have told me three years ago that I would be talking to my friend about my faith, I would have said, are you crazy? I, I can't talk about my faith. You know, but... God has been growing faith in me and I'm taking risks now and I'm telling other people about Christ. So we need to share the Gospel in faith. We need to take risks for God. Uh, some of you I, I know in the church are thinking about going on some short-term mission trips. And maybe like five years ago you never would have considered a risk like that. But God's calling you out in, uh, toward that. I, I think 
you know, I think one of the challenges we face as Christians in a difficult economy is by faith continuing to give financially to the work of the gospel. It's like people have lost their jobs. Some of us have had our pay. You know, it's like, hey, you got your job, great, but you get 25% reduction in pay. (laughs) So there you go, there's your job. Or there's no raises or whatever it is. And, and, you know, being New Englanders, we're kind of conservative, and it's easy just to sort of pull back and say, well, I'm afraid, but missionaries still need our support. One of the, the things that I just want to challenge you on, I'm challenged on, is a congregation this year when we did our, our pledge drive to raise money, not for this church, but for our missionaries, uh, we had 10% fewer number of pledges. But I know our church has not declined by 10%. In fact, it's probably grown a little. So I want to challenge you as a congregation. Do you trust God? Missionaries still need to be supported. The gospel still needs to go to the nations. Do we trust God or not with our finances? You need to think about that. So we need to be growing. Love, faith. What's the third one? Service. He says, you guys have really learned the art of servanthood. Again, Jesus was a servant. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. So before I come to Christ, I'm very selfish, I'm very narcissistic, but the more I come to know Christ, I should learn to be a servant in the church, outside of the church, in the community, to my family. Uh, there was a membership class that's going on right now, and I, I popped in last Sunday just to meet some of the people who are thinking about joining the church. And this one lady was there, and she's like, "Yeah, I got some questions for you, Pastor. I want to know, you know, about serving in this church because I'm really thinking about if I become a member, how am I going to serve here, and what is it God wants me to do?" And I was like, "Whew! I want this lady in the church." <laughs> but it's true, you know. Like when, when I was immature in my faith, I come to the church and I say, "I got some needs. Can this church meet my needs?" Is this church going to give me what I need and what I want? But as I mature in my faith, I start saying, this church has some needs. What can I do? Or someone has some needs that I know. know, Can I be there to be a servant? And so growing in grace and godliness is growth in service to others. And then the last one, perseverance. They're growing in their ability. Perseverance is the ability to keep going in your faith despite increased pain in your life. And we have pain in our lives, and it's easy to say, God, why are you doing this to me? It's not fair. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done for you? You know, God? I mean, and you're doing this to me after I've all I've done for you? You know, as if serving God is some kind of quid pro quo kind of relationship. It, it, but perseverance says, even though I'm going through difficulty, I'm going to keep persevering in my trust in the Lord. And, you know, that's one of the encouraging things I have as a pastor is because some of you share your lives with me, I know some of your backstories. Not all of you, but some. So when I'm there on Sunday morning, you know, shaking hands or whatever, and I see a person walk by and I'm like, I know that person is on chemo. I know that person has been out of work for 14 months. I know that person is going through challenges in their family. I know, you know, I'm just thinking this in my head. Uh, You know, I know that person... um, you know, you name it, going through this trial or that trial. And look, they're still coming to worship the Lord. You know, instead of saying, oh, why is God doing this to me and having a pity party? They're like, I'm going to praise him. You know, he is worthy of praise whether I'm struggling or not. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of my praise and my service. And, and that's so encouraging to me. And I don't want to embarrass her, but, but Karen, I just I appreciate you singing in the choir, even though you're struggling with your own health. You know, it's such a blessing just to see you there. Like, 
you know, you could be having a pity party, but you're like, not only are you going to praise God, you're going to lead us in praising God. That's perseverance. And it's growth and perseverance. That's real church growth. When a church is growing in love, faith, keep this list right here, service, perseverance, God and Jesus says, you guys are doing it. I want to thank you. You're reflecting my glory, my character. You're looking more and more like me every day, Jesus is saying. So there's a commendation. But not all is well. We usually have some area where we need to improve. And so Jesus points that out too. And the next thing he has is he has a condemnation. And it's basically that, what we talked about a little earlier, that there's someone in the church who is a false teacher, who's one of these bad apple spiritual leaders, that for whatever reason they haven't gotten rid of this person. And Jesus is like, you're letting her stay in my church. And so in this case, it's some woman. We don't know her name, but she's called Jezebel here. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Here's the condemnation. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servant into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So it appears, uh, if you were here last Sunday, and you remember last week's message, that the church in Thyatira has a similar problem as the church in Pergamum. Go back and look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Look at what he said to that church. He said, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. So in both churches, there were some false teaching group. In one church, it was some the Balaamite party. In this church, Jesus calls her Jezebel. But there was some person or group who was bringing false teaching into the church. And then as a result of it, the people were compromising their faith. They were compromising and uh, participating in the idolatry of the culture around them. They live in these pagan idolatrous areas. And so, same thing here. Except in this church, it's Jezebel. Now, just so as you can probably guess, that's not, probably not her real name. It's a very unflattering code name from the Old Testament. Uh, this is an infamous character from the Old Testament. Jesus is like, you got a Jezebel in your church. Now, who is Jezebel? Maybe you've heard the phrase, a painted Jezebel, that comes out of the Bible. Let, let's go back and look at who Jezebel was. Put a bookmark here in Revelation 2. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 16. It's on page 348 in the Pew Bible. 1 Kings chapter 16. Get a little flavor of Jezebel. And I'll just sum it up. Jezebel was a corrupt, vicious queen of Israel who introduced idol worship into the nation. Or or I should say introduced a new level of, of idolatry into the nation of Israel. So look at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. So this is a new king of Israel named Ahab. He reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So he topped all the other kings before him in disobeying God. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. That's a guy who built a couple golden calves in Israel. But it says, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, 
king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So he just set new world records for ticking God off with his idolatry. And notice that part of that was he married Jezebel. So Jezebel was a Sidonian. She wasn't an Israelite. The, uh, Sidon was to sort of the west, northwest of Israel along the coast. It was a Canaanite people. And it looks like she was a princess, that her father was the king. So this was likely some kind of political marriage uh, where two countries form an alliance by having the royalty marry one another. So here you have Ahab. He marries Jezebel. Uh, but the problem is, you know, sometimes when you get married, you, you bring all kinds of uh, stuff with you from your past and some of your issues that aren't dealt with. And that's what happened here. Jezebel brought her religion to Israel because in Sidon, they worshipped uh, this, this fertility god and goddess. Their names were Baal and Asherah. And so they were the fertility gods, the rain gods, the god of the crops, that kind of thing. And she didn't just come with, you know, some stuff from her mom's house and some suitcases. I mean, she came with her gods. And they set up temples in Israel to Baal and Asherah. And so she really became an advocate of bringing Baal worship into Israel in a new way. And not only that, but she was opposed to the worship of the true God. Look at chapter 18. Here's another little uh, snippet from Jezebel's life. Just kind of give you the sense of, of what a murderous witch, <laughs> literally. You find out later she practiced witchcraft. I mean, this was an evil woman. And she was a murderer. She was just a bad person. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So God had sent a drought, sort of an ironic judgment on a country that was following a rain god, <laughs> that God would send a drought. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. You see that? Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. So Jezebel was not only introducing Baal worship, she was killing off God's prophets. And we know from other, I won't read all the stories about Jezebel, but she had an innocent man murdered to get her husband some land. She conspired to do that. She uh, supported, she subsidized from the royal treasuries 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. This was a bad apple in Israel. And she was at the highest levels of government. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 2. Let's read verse 20 again and just see if perhaps this Old Testament background doesn't bring a little bit of uh, fresh insight into verse 20. Says, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So you got a Jezebel there. You have a woman, apparently in this case, it doesn't necessarily that it has to be a woman, it could be a man, but it's a false teacher who's a woman here, who's in a position of spiritual authority, in this case claiming to be a prophetess of God. And like Jezebel did in Israel, this woman is inciting idolatry, idolatrous compromise in the church by 
sort of telling the people that it was okay to just go along with the culture, to engage in the sexual immorality of the culture, and to engage in the worship of idols in the culture. So she was saying, you know, it's okay to go along and get along with the pagan culture around us. Let's not make waves. Let's blend in. Let's fit in. It's all right. God has spoken to me and told me that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And so this is why we have to be so careful, like I said earlier, about spiritual leadership in the church, who you listen to. You always need some little antenna up and radar on to, to see what are you listening to and, and who is it that's leading and teaching you in different ways. Um, just because someone is a pastor or priest or has REV in front of their name or has a doctorate or degrees in theology, it doesn't mean that that person is someone who should be leading you spiritually. They may be or they may not be. But don't just assume because they have credentials or because they wear a collar or something like that that it's necessarily a godly person. Don't assume that just because somebody um, calls himself a prophet or claims to have the anointing or claims to have a word from God or has a popular TV show or whatever, you know, don't assume that that person is a sound teacher that's going to be feeding your soul well. Um, because false teachers can be clever, they can be witty, they can, they can shoot Bible verses at you like a machine gun, and you're like, oh, wow, you must be godly because you quoted more verses right there than I've ever even heard of. So I don't know as much Bible as you, so I guess I'll just listen to you. You know, be discerning. You need to use your mind and the wisdom that God has given you to just be discerning about that. Um, how do you know a false teacher then? Let me do this. Let me give you a two part test that you can use to test religious leaders. I want to equip you with kind of like a little, you know, pocket test that you can take so that when you're bumping up against religious leaders, you can sort of take it out and do a sniff test real quick to see whether the person is someone you should follow or not. So it's a two two aspects to this test and and this comes out of the scriptures and it's this. The first test is this and it's kind of obvious. Uh, Number one if what the person is teaching contradicts this book, it's probably not the right person to listen to. And I don't care if they call themselves a prophet and they claim to speak for God. If what they're saying contradicts the Word of God, don't listen to them. You know, in the Old Testament, false prophets in Israel were stoned. And I mean, you know, with rocks, you know. <laughs> they were killed. They, they were executed. Phys- they were dead. That's, that's how seriously God takes His Word. Um, the, it, it, so we need to test what people say. Jezebel was teaching false things. She was teaching them to compromise with the idolatrous culture around them in Thyatira, to go along with the pagan festivals to fit in, that it was okay. And you could go back to the Word of God and say, you know, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, second commandment, do not make a graven image. I mean, it's, it's contradicting God's Word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It should be obvious. And so if someone is teaching things, you have to sort of listen to that and feel that out. Even if you don't have master's degree in the Bible, but you're listening to someone teach and there's just some little thing in your head, sometimes like a little feeling in your gut, you're like, this doesn't sound right. 
This doesn't sound right. Have you ever had that feeling sometimes? And, and you can't even put your finger on what it is. And, and you're like, I don't even know if I can articulate what isn't right here, but just something doesn't feel right. I just want to encourage you to, to follow that little lead a little bit. Maybe it'll turn out to be nothing. Maybe you'll learn something. But maybe you're on to something. You just can't quite put it into words. But you've heard enough of God's Word, taught well in various places. You've read enough of God's Word. And somehow the Holy Spirit is just kind of giving you a little, like a little warning sign on your dashboard saying, Mm-mm-mm, be careful. And you need to listen to that when you hear that. It may be something or it may not. But, but I just think we need to trust God's Word. This is God's Word. And if someone's teaching things that contradict it, you need to be careful of that. Now, does that mean that, that good teachers... Good pastors or good Sunday school teachers are always right on with God's Word? Of course not. You know, I'm not infallible. There's no one who is on planet Earth. Only Christ is infallible. Um, but, but I think overall, is the teaching sound? Is it according to God's Word? Uh, look at something else she taught. Go to verse 24. She says, now I sa-, Jesus says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. So apparently she had some deeper teaching. It's not clear here whether she, she called it Satan's deep things or Satan's deep secrets or whether Jesus is just kind of uh, polemically and sarcastically mocking her teaching by calling it Satan's deep secrets. Maybe she called it just the deep teaching or the deep things of God. So it's not clear what the name of it was. But I think the point is it was something that was supposedly deeper and more profound than Scripture. You know, the Bible's good for beginners, but if you want to really, hmm, if you want to really go deep, I've got some secret. I'm a prophet, and I've got some secret things from God that I can tell you that are way beyond the regular Bible knowledge that you get. You know, you've got to be careful of those kinds of claims. And we're so susceptible to it because we all love secrets. Hmm? That's why gossip is so fun, you know? Oh, you have a juicy little secret about so-and-so? Ooh, you know, we love to be people who are on the inside of a secret knowledge that other people don't have. It's very alluring to do. You know, the Bible, will put, anybody can read that. Oh, but you have a secret piece of information, about, you know, it's a deeper knowledge, a more profound teaching, and we're just drawn to that additional teaching. And the idea of, of the Bible being enough. It's like, oh, no, no, we just want that additional little insight that if you know this extra thing, that's what's really going to affect you. Um, false teaching will sometimes say the Bible is wrong, but more often in the church, false teaching is it's the Bible and something else. You know, it's the gospel and something else is what you need. And so we have to be careful to discern that. Are, are we being told that it's Jesus and something else that we need? Um, you know, this was the, the whole Protestant Reformation. The, the, the Protestant Reformers it, against the, the medieval Catholic Church stood up and, and their whole thing was, it's, the, it's Scripture, and here's the key word, alone. You know, the Catholic Church held Scripture too, but it was Scripture and the uh, sort of secreted traditions of the church over the ages that were then authoritative over the Scripture so that if you want to know the Scripture, you had to go to the church to say, church, tell me what the Scripture says. And the Protestant reformers said, you know, tradition, <laughs> Scripture. Read it yourselves. In fact, we'll translate it into your languages. And, and that was what it was all about. And I think that as Christians, we need to go through a regular reformation 
where we take ourselves and our minds and our church and our lives and keep going back to the Scriptures. The point isn't what denomination you're in. The point is, are we living by God's Word? That's the whole point of the Reformation, not making a denomination, but going back to God's Word. This is enough. We don't need these deeper things, these secret things. We're so tempted to compromise the Gospel. Um, You know, the Gospel is such a simple message. You know the Gospel message. It's the message that we're sinners, I'm a sinner, I deserve judgment, but God in His mercy sent His own Son to die on the cross so that through His sacrifice, through Him taking my punishment, I could be forgiven. Jesus was crucified, buried, He rose again. And now if I'll turn away from my sins and just put my faith in Jesus, I can be forgiven and saved. And it's like, oh, that's too simple. Just faith in Christ. Too simple. We need extra things. And, and you know, we live in a modern age. That simple gospel won't reach people today. Just the Bible won't reach people today. We've we got to connect where people are. We need newer ideas. We've got to find out what the latest uh, sort of theory or philosophy is and kind of adapt the church to it to reach people. You, you know, we need to bring people in here. We need more candles. We need more incense. Or maybe, um, you know, we need smoke machines and some... You know, some dramatic uh, black lighting or something, you know. Maybe, maybe we could rig it so like, I sort of just like, come out of the ground through the smoke. You know? and, and then, you know, because that's the culture we're in. You know, we need a show. We need entertainment. It's always the Gospel and the Bible. And, and so we need to keep coming back to pushing that stuff aside and saying God's Word alone is sufficient for leading us to Christ. And it's not some special thing that I bring. It's just... Here it is, right? So watch for false teachers. Watch how they either contradict God's Word or say, well, God's Word's okay, but you also need this revelation or that extra teaching. And the second thing, just quickly, to look for in false teachers is not only does their teaching contradict Scripture, usually their lives contradict Scripture. So look at their character. Jezebel was a charlatan, and you could tell because look how she lived. She was... In this case, sexually immoral. Uh, she didn't honor sexuality within the bounds of male-female marriage. And so, you know, you could see that in her life. You could see her manipulation. Go back to the Old Testament. Jezebel, the Old Testament, was murderous, manipulative, crude. And, and so you have to look at a teacher's life. You have to examine them to see where they're coming from. Do you see signs of pride, arrogance, and control? I think a lot of times false teachers are big on everyone doing what they say. And if you contradict them, watch out. You know, and, and that kind of authoritative tyranny is often a sign of false teacher. Um, look, look out for people, you know, look out for sexual immorality. If someone calls themselves a religious leader and they're having all kinds of affairs or sexual things, don't follow them. Their life is not supporting their teaching. If, uh, if someone is greedy and they're making millions and millions and millions off their ministry every year, that should be a red, li- red flag. You know, even those kinds of things. I mean, we've got to pay pastors to live, but, you know, come on. Um, so, so I think those kinds of things, just watch the person's life. Now, is a good shepherd 100% sinless? Of course not. So you can always find flaws in anybody. But this is something I've noticed, is that when you go to a godly person and you confront them about something, godly people will tend to listen and humbly evaluate it and often repent and say, you know what, you had a good point there. I'm really sorry. 
you know, pray for me as I work on that. You'll get that kind of humility from a godly person. So even the failures of a godly person can be used to elucidate the character of the godly person and identify that person as humble, teachable, and, and repentant and gentle. But the church in Thyatira didn't see that, or they saw it and they didn't do anything about it. The problem was they tolerated this person. And Jesus says you tolerate her. This is a problem. And I just want to tell you as a church, if there is a, a, a true false teacher in a church, it is the res- ultimately the responsibility of the congregation to identify and remove that person. Even if it's the senior pastor. <laughs> it is the responsibility of the congregation to stand up and resist it for the sake of the congregation. And uh, I, I know a, a friend right now in another church in another state. I've been on the phone with him. And it sounds like in their church, you know, from everything this guy's telling me, it sounds like the pastor is just some real deficiencies of character that need to be addressed. And I'm always one to come to the defense of pastors because I know how hard it is to be a pastor. But, you know, uh, there's times where you, I don't know where the line is where it's like, hey, this is a real problem and this guy should really deal with some things in his life. And the congregation is taking steps to remove that, that pastor. And if he is the way I'm being told he is, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe he needs to be removed so he can deal with issues in his life and follow Christ. It's a high calling to be a religious leader, whatever that station may be. So, Jesus says, you're not dealing with it. So guess what, Jesus says? I'm going to come deal with it. Don't make me come down there. I'm going to have to come down. (laughs) Verse 21, look, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. I've given Jezebel time to stop this nonsense. Verse 23, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, which probably refers to an actual sickness that she's going to get. He says, I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Committing adultery with her could refer to either, could refer to literal adultery, or it could refer to just participating in her idolatry, so kind of a spiritual adultery. And then verse 23, I will strike your children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. If you won't stand up for my glory, says Christ, I will come and defend my glory in my name. And so, come back. So there's the commendation. You're growing. It's good. I see love, faith, service, perseverance, increasing. But condemnation You've let this woman come in in this case. This is some false teacher. She's herding my sheep. And you haven't dealt with her, so I'm coming to deal with her. Which is a scary thought. And then finally, number three, just quickly, the call. And the call is keep pressing on. You've got to overcome. You can't stop now. Look at verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. I love that phrase. Just hold on to what you have. It's real. Jesus is like, I'm going to make it real easy for you. I'll take care of You didn't take care of the woman? Fine. I'll take care of her. <laughs> you guys just, I'll make it simple. Just hold on. That's all you have to do. Hold on to what you have. What do they have? Well, in this text, it seems like they at least have two things. Number one, they have Christ-like character. Keep obeying God. 
your little acts of obedience, you know, that you think nobody sees. It's like, I'm just this Christian. I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm just trying to love people. I'm trying to, I'm doing these little things to reach out to my neighbor and care for the lady next door who needs her lawn raked or I'm, I'm just holding ba- babies once a month in the nursery. I'm just doing these little acts of service. I mean, it doesn't amount to much. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. No. Jesus says, I see all with my burning eyes and I see what you're doing. So just hold on to your simple life of Christian obedience, whether anybody cares about it or not. I see it. I know it. It is noted in the books. Just hold on. Keep persevering. But not only are they to hold on to their godly lives, the other thing they're supposed to hold on to, I think in this context especially, is godly teaching. Notice the contrast. You haven't held on to her teaching. Instead, you need to hold on to what you have, which I think then has to include uh, sound doctrine. In other words, just keep holding on to this book. You know? The world may think you're one of those Bible bumpkins. Who cares? Just hold on to the Word of God. You know? And the world says, no, 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 that's not enough. The Gospel's not enough. You need this, you need that. You've got to become more savvy, more whatever. You, you can't teach that doctrine. That'll scare people. You can't talk about hell or sin. That's not very tolerant, you know, or whatever. And it's like, no, I'm just going to hold on to God's Word. And this is what I need. It's the Word of God. And Jesus says, if we will do that, if we'll hold on to godly living and to godly doctrine, our life and our doctrine, orthopraxy and orthodoxy, he then says in verse 26, here's what he'll do. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give. And then he lists two things. Number one, this is amazing. He says, I will give authority over the nations. So if you will simply hold on to Christ and hold on to his teaching, as insignificant as you may feel, as powerless as you may feel, Jesus says, reward is authority over the world. I'll give you rulership over planet earth. You will reign with me over the nations. I just find this verse staggering. He says, and then he quotes Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm about the Son of God reigning over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash into pieces like pottery. He says, just as I have received authority from my Father, I will share my authority with you. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here he's saying, and I will give it to you. And so I, you know, I've just been trying to wrap my mind around this verse. This has been a hard one for me this week. Like, I'll rule the nations? Little me with my dumb little Bible beliefs and my simple little life of trying to obey Jesus even though it seems so not cool and out of sorts of the culture. Jesus says, just be faithful. Hold on. You will rule the nations. I can't imagine. And then there's another prize. Look at verse 28. Here's the last one. I will also give Him the morning star. Now, astronomically speaking... The morning star, of course, is Venus. It's a planet. It's not a star. It's the third brightest object in the sky. There's the sun, the moon, then Venus. And you see Venus right before dawn. You know, it's the morning star. It's as, the, as the stars are kind of receding, as the sun is starting to come, you still see Venus shining there on the western horizon. It's the morning star. It signals the coming of dawn. And so Jesus says, you're going to get the morning star. Now, what does that mean that we're going to get the morning star? Does it mean we're going to go live on Venus? No. Look at Revelation 22. Last text. Revelation 22:16. Let's use Scripture to interpret Scripture. 
This is the other place Morningstar appears in Revelation. It's incredibly helpful. Jesus says in Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent My angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Then He says, I am the root and offspring of David. There's the King, the Messianic King. And I am the bright morning star. So we receive Jesus. Jesus is the morning star. He's risen from the dead. He's at the Father's right hand. And with Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it signals that the dawn of the Messianic Kingdom has begun. And that the next thing that will happen is that Christ will return. So, this is not the time for you New England Christians to get all down in the mouth about our situation. This is not the time for us to mope and whine and say, oh, I'm the only Christian on my street. I'm the only Christian in my family. I'm the, you know, I'm the only Christian in my school. I'm so beat down and downtrodden. This is not the time to do that. You know, because we can look up and we can see the morning star. Christ is risen. He's the Lord. And that means what? The dawn is near. That the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, and, and we just look at the ground, it seems so dark, and we need to look up and see Christ and be, be encouraged. Be encouraged to stay faithful. Be encouraged to hold to the gospel. And not just hold to the gospel and defend it, hold forth the gospel and share it. We need to be bold and, and don't worry about what our culture thinks of us. We need to be faithful, authentic Christians because the morning star is already in the sky, which means dawn is close. Are we ready? Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.